This podcast is brought to you by Wendy Lowen, the co-author of a new book entitled The Culture Question, How to Create a Workplace Where People Like to Work. Please listen to podcast number 696, where Wendy and Greg speak about the challenges employers face today in improving the engagement of their workforce. The Culture Question helps employers faced with these issues by creating an aligned culture through providing sound advice from the team of experts at Achieve Center for Leadership and Workplace Performance. For more information on the book, please visit their website at www.achievecenter.com. Please enjoy podcast number 696 with author Wendy Lowen, where she discusses her new book, The Culture Question. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Mark, as I do every time I come on these shows, I really have to thank the thousands of listeners from around the world who are really, as I said to you before we got on the line, they're seekers. They're looking for content, information. They're looking to learn more. And they certainly can learn a lot from you. And I'm going to let them know just a tad bit about you. So for all of you out there, um, we are going to be interviewing Mark Gober regarding his new book called An End to Upside Down Thinking dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. And this, this book, I might say for most people out there, it's going to be a head turner. Um, and that's why he calls it the end of upside down thinking. Uh, Mark does not come from this traditional cosmology, spirituality background that got him here, but we're going to talk about that a little bit. He's a partner in Silicon Valley Investment Bank and Strategy Firm. He's been drawn to life's biggest questions, starting from his years at Princeton. Undergrad, physics, particularly astrophysics, fascinated him. And he was too far into the economic major and other obligations to make a switch. So as a compromise, instead of studying the invisible forces that govern nature, elected to study the invisible forces that cover human judgment and decision-making, psychology, behavioral economics. But these big uh, existence questions continue to plague him until he began to research what converted him from the materialist and ultimately propelled him to write this book. For all of you who are listening, you can go find out more about Mark at Mark Gober, and that's G-O-B-E-R.com. That's his website. There you'll find more information. We'll put a link to this on website, on our website as well, in our blog. So Mark, tell our listeners a little bit about the story and how you came to write the book. Because as I mentioned in that intro, this is fundamentally radical, radical to the beliefs of people that kind of hang out in the financial services industry, um, which is where you landed. Granted, you were influenced at Princeton uh, by some of the physics and things that went on. But tell them a little bit more of that backstory, if you would. Yeah, well, it was actually very radical for my prior beliefs as well. And this was not something that I had ever planned on getting into explicitly. Although, as you mentioned, I had big questions from an early age. And then when I was at Princeton and I took some courses in physics and astrophysics, I was interested in, in the grandness of the topics they were talking about. But none of those were getting to the topic that I talk about in my book, which is really around consciousness. And it started for me, my interest in this particular topic, in August of 2016, where I was listening to a podcast on health, 
called Extreme Health Radio, and I heard a woman who described her psychic abilities, and she talked about all kinds of things like being able to work with energies and communicating with non-physical entities and, and like things that I had never heard of in a serious way beyond science fiction. And at the end of that podcast, the woman whose name is Laura Powers talked about her own podcast called Healing Powers, which I then decided to listen to just because I drive from where I live in San Francisco down to San Mateo, uh, which is where our office is. And uh, I have a lot of time in the car. So I just turned on that podcast because I was interested in what Laura had to say. And I ended up listening to all the episodes on, on her podcast from 2016 when I started listening back to 2011 in the course of a few weeks. And I was really interested in, in the fact that there were so many people who were independently describing a picture of reality and a picture of consciousness that I had never heard of before. So the long story, story short is that after listening to those episodes, I started to read up on the research and realized there was a whole bunch of science and even physics that pointed in this direction as well. It caused a massive worldview shift for me. And after researching for about a year, I decided to summarize what I had learned and put it into writing. And that's the book, An End to Upside Down Thinking. And that's a great explanation. And I think uh, along your path, look, it's around materialism. And I think that scientists try and distill everything down into that nature, right? And so science and spirituality, if you look at it from a standpoint of a historical viewpoint, at one point they were merged and then they separated again. And there is a big element here of spirituality. And you're asking people really to, I'm going to say, suspend or adopt a new reality that materialism, where matter is the basis of all reality. And through all the books that you've read and research papers that you compiled and so on, what do you really believe is, and I'm going to say this with a small t, truth? Well, that's really what has driven me the whole this whole time, and even now when I continue my research, is to understand what is this reality that we're in. And I think whether it's science or spirituality or whatever the tradition, it's, it's a seeking of truth. So the word spirituality actually doesn't appear in my book, and that's for a reason, because I think it's a, it has become a loaded term. For me, it's about understanding reality, and the reality that I seem to be pointing towards is one that is aligned with what many spiritual traditions have also said, and that's interesting to me. But when I think about my current worldview or just general picture of what things are, I think there's still a lot that we don't know compared to my old one, which, as you said, is materialism. Materialism says that everything can be reduced to matter, and basically there was a Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago that started the universe, filled the universe with matter, and when you have lots of matter in this big universe, chance tells us that there will be interactions between those pieces of matter, and we call that chemistry. So we started with just matter and physics, and then we get chemistry, and when you have enough random chemical reactions, chance tells us that we'll end up with a molecule that can replicate itself, like DNA. So DNA leads to biology, like a human being, which develops a brain. And from the brain comes out the awareness or consciousness that we all experience. And so this is the really the conventional worldview in much of science and just mainstream thinking, which is that matter creates consciousness through a brain. And that is precisely the view that I, I'm challenging in my book. And so what I now think of tr truth is, at, is where we, we switch the role of consciousness in that picture. So instead of saying consciousness comes at the very end through a brain, consciousness instead comes first. So consciousness is primary 
more fundamental than even matter. So that means matter, chemistry, biology, and even brains are within consciousness. And that's the paradigm shift that I'm directionally moving towards. It's not matter creates consciousness. It's consciousness is fundamental. And that's interesting because you were on a show not that long ago called Buddha at the gas station. And I happened to be with Tim Frick last night, Fricky soul story. You might know mm-hmm. him very similar. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, very similar philosophy. And I, I had some interesting questions for him and obviously I do for you. So are you going to say that you're atheist or agnostic or both? Well, how would you define those terms? I'm going to define those terms in one where you don't believe in a greater power. And, and what, what do you mean by greater power? I'm just going to say, let's say it's called God. And it is, it, you know, get to realize it doesn't matter for me or the audience yeah. where you are. What matters is what is the fundamental philosophy behind it? I mean, we're, yes, materialism is what the scientists want in one sense. There seems to be this road there, but where would you kind of put yourself? So I'll describe the picture that I use in the book, and I think directionally is where I think is the most likely picture of reality. And it's, it's a, an analogy used by Dr. Bernardo Castro, a philosopher in this area, who says that we should imagine that all of reality is like a stream of water, where water represents consciousness, and each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream, meaning that we're made of water, but we're fundamentally connected as part of this bigger stream of water. So it, we, we, it seems like we're separate. That's what our eyes seem to show us. But fundamentally, we're connected as part of the same consciousness. Or as Erwin Schrodinger, the famous Nobel Prize winning physicist, he said, in truth, there is only one mind. So that's the general picture that I, I, I point towards now. Mm-hmm. And so whether or not one considers the broader stream, like if I'm a whirlpool and I'm still part of the broader stream, if one wants to consider that broader stream a higher power, then I would say, yes, I buy into a higher power, higher intelligence. But in some sense, calling it a higher intelligence implies separation. And that's a subtle distinction that I, 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 I'm, I'm contending that we're all interconnected. So there actually is no external at the fundamental level. Yes, but if it, if it let's go down this road, if, if you say no, God is in all of us, then it doesn't represent separateness or divisiveness or, or whatever. It's saying that God is in everything. So, but with that being said, you are really asking scientists to shift paradigms and that that threatens mainstream thought. Why in your estimation don't science and spirituality or cosmology coexist? Something I ask myself every day now, and I think the biggest issue is that there there tends to be a resistance to new ways of thinking. And this is something that we've seen throughout the history of science, and it's something that I see professionally all the time, actually. At my firm, Sherpa Technology Group, where I've been for nine years now, we advise companies on their technology, their innovations, and their intellectual property, like patents in particular. So a patent, by definition, is something that is regarded as both novel and non-obvious relative to what has been done in the past with regard to a certain technology, meaning that each new invention is challenging how people used to do things. It's doing something above and beyond. And what I see professionally in that realm with, with engineers who are innovators is that there's often resistance to new ways of doing things technologically until it's accepted as being the status quo. 
I think in science, we're seeing something very similar where there is a status quo set of assumptions of materialism, which I should note, there are major questions with materialism. Science Magazine, for example, has said that the number two question that remains in all of science is this question of consciousness, which is how is it, how is it that a brain produces consciousness? We know the brain's related to it, but how does the brain make it? Science doesn't have an answer to that. So that's, um, you know, that's, that's an important thing to acknowledge that science does not have the answers to these things. And yet there is an assumption that the brain must somehow produce it. And that's just kind of the ingrained thinking. And because that's so ingrained, I think there's resistance to ideas that challenge it because if that assumption that the brain produces consciousness is incorrect, it has massive implications, not only for how we think about reality and cosmology, but also identity. Mm -hmm. So it becomes an internal shift. And I think that is really hard for people. So there's resistance. And I felt resistance as I was doing this research as well. It took a lot of evidence and a lot of research myself to say, wait a second, I cannot reconcile all of this new stuff with this old materialistic worldview. Yeah. And what I believe is that, and again, it's this matter of interpretation, um, that ego creates biases. Um, these biases exist uh, no matter if you're in the field of science or spirituality. Um, and it's not a matter of pitting one against the other. It's a matter of trying to figure out how these two ultimately merge to create, um, I don't want to call an evolution of the two. So your question yeah. is about where consciousness resides, comes from, emanates, whatever you want to call it. What's the new paradigm and premise that you want to convey to my audience regarding or for consideration relative to consciousness? Well, first of all, I want to emphasize that consciousness, while it sounds like a scientific term and sometimes sounds academic, it's fundamental for all of us. Anyone listening right now has a consciousness, your consciousness at this very moment as you listen to these words. So this is relevant to every single person because science does not understand how this consciousness, which is not actually a physical thing, how it could emerge from a universe and a body that is physical. So like I could touch my arm right now, but I can't touch my mind or my consciousness. And this is the big issue. How is, how is this happening? We know the brain is playing some role. And there's a whole field of this neuroscience, which looks at how the brain is related to consciousness. But what I argue in the book, and many other scientists are making this case, I'm really just summarizing their work, is to say that Yes, the brain is related, but it's not producing consciousness. We should recontextualize the brain and view it almost like an antenna receiver or like a processor or like a filtering mechanism where the brain's not producing consciousness, but it's processing it. And the consciousness itself is not limited to this body. And I don't disagree with you on that. I think that consciousness can be simply defined. You know, it's like, hey, you're saying I'm listening to these words in this podcast right now. My attention is that consciousness going to the words, right? And right. So if, it, if I say that I'm speaking to you right now, I in that sentence is what I mean by consciousness. Right. Right. You know, you have this chapter on, and I hope I don't mess up this name prior to chaos, quantum, and is it relativistic chaos? relativistic relativistic okay you'll you'll say it i'll mess it up that proven <laughs> and accepted science defies common sense one example yeah. of that you said is that matter 
and that matter is 99.9999% empty space. Okay, I think my listeners get that. Um, It's like I'm standing at a standing desk right now and I feel the table, but we do know there's atoms and molecules in that table, the same thing in my arm as you talk about in the book. And that time is not what it seems, but you comment that for, if you can comment for our audience on the perspectives and research completed in this area. In other words, that area with related to, you know, where we see matter as solid and yet it's not solid, but that's everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is a really important point because I think we tend to be biased by what our eyes show us and also our ears, our nose, our mouth, our, our normal perceptual systems. And we take that as being the exact picture of reality, even though we don't maybe consciously say it that way. It's just, it's such a compelling picture that we interpret the world that we see with our eyes to be what it is. But we know from science, both at the very big scales and also at the tiny, tiny quantum level, that things do not work in a way that conforms with our common sense or things that our eyes would necessarily predict would be the case based on what we see on a daily basis. So looking at the atom is a really good example because the atom would seem to be solid if we look at our table because we know our table is made of atoms and we think the table looks solid and feels solid, but in fact, it's very much empty. Another example is what's known as the observer effect in quantum physics, which essentially says that a, a particle, meaning a solid piece of matter, does not act like a solid piece of matter unless someone's observing or looking at it. And there are questions about what it means to observe, whether it's a human or consciousness or a machine or whatever. But the point is that a piece of matter is not behaving like matter all the time. It actually behaves like a wave of probability unless it's being observed. And by a wave of probability, I mean, it's maybe here, maybe there. It's not a solid thing. So this stuff that we call matter and in materialism, you know, matter is the basis of everything. Number one, it's not even solid. It's, it's barely solid. It's mostly empty, as you mentioned. And if we're not looking at it, it behaves like a wave. So what is this stuff that we call matter that mainstream science is purporting to create consciousness? Well, that's a good question. I guess that might lead to a question around um, our, I, you know, when people start to deal in augmented reality uh, or they deal in quantum physics, which is what you're talking about, um, or we deal in different dimensions that we reside in or are in, um, obviously that matter, I would say it morphs. Would you like to comment on that? Well, I guess what we regard as being matter is our perception of matter and the Correct. way in which per- it's we- the perception of where we are consciously. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So I think that that is really determining how we're perceiving all matter, regardless of our state. Correct. Because we're like an observer of self. So if I said to you, hey, Mark, if you turned on the video camera today and I watched you all day long, what might I watch as your actions all day long? Is that really what I'm seeing? Right. right? Well, it's certainly it's, your, your, your observation of it. It is my observation. That's correct. That's correct. So that it brings me to this. You know, we had Stephen Schwartz on this show for a book called Opening the Infinite. And in that show, I remember distinctly about 
how these people used uh, people that were sitting from a distance for remote viewing, which is also known as non-local awareness, to actually capture Saddam Hussein. And the government, you cited, you took pictures. There's pictures in your book of, of much of this. Uh, maybe not the same content, but it's there. That, you know, our government's dealing in stuff like this. Remote viewing, you know, they're hiring people to do this. They did in this case, and it was quite successful. Uh, we know about psychics that that detectives hire to try and find killers. And they're able to tap in to whatever power this is you want to call it. So as an example of one of these areas, people might want to consider regarding the proof that consciousness does not stem from matter. Can you explain, if you would, this, and you have so many that you cite, Mark. I mean, it's one after another after another of these opportunities for people to try and understand this. So let's just use this remote viewing as an example for right now. Sure, and, and for and, the context, I'd just like for you to cons. I'd like for you to comment on the construct of consciousness as it exists to be able to remotely be in one location, view something, and say, "Oh yeah, Saddam Hussein is in that hole over there, uh, and this is where the guys ought to go." Yeah, yeah. So this is one example out of many in my book, as you mentioned, where there are examples of consciousness being kind of non-local to the brain. And my, my general argument is that if any one of these things is real, we really have to rethink the paradigm of materialism because we can't explain it well. Remote viewing is a particularly compelling one, I think, because it was used by the U.S. government for at least over 20 years where they spent over $20 million using re remote viewers, people that are particularly skilled at being in one location and being able to perceive something with their mind that is far away that they've never seen before. One of, I think, the most interesting cases is a case that was confirmed by former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, where there was a lost uh, Russian bomber in an African jungle, and the, the conventional radar systems couldn't find it, and there was apparently important stuff on that bomber, so people were looking for it. They used remote viewers to locate where the bomber was, even though nobody knew where it was, and these remote viewers were in California. They were mm -hmm. in the U.S., and this bomber was in Africa. So that's an right. example of remote viewing, seeing something that's far away without seeing it with your eyes. Well, even Larry Dossey, who endorses your book, uh, who spent much of his time uh, talking about distance healing. I did a lot of research on distance healing. So you've got somebody who you send a vibrational energy to and they heal. Comment on that one, if you would. Yeah, so it goes back to the analogy of the stream, I think. If we think of ourselves as being connected as part of the same stream of consciousness, then things like non-local perception or healing make sense because it's just a matter of accessing another part of the stream that's sort of outside of our individual whirlpool. And there seem to be ways of doing that, such as meditation or trance-like states, to, to access more of the whirlpool. And it also would follow that it might be possible to influence other parts of the, the stream if we're connected as part of the same uh, body of water. Um, so if you think of the brain, I mentioned the term that the brain's like a receiver of consciousness. It, the more accurate term is, is that it might be more like a transceiver, that it can receive and transmit consciousness or intention. 
And uh, the, the, the study of non-local healing is kind of an example of that, where the intention of one person can impact the biology of another that's far away. Mm-hmm. I, think the most, I think the most compelling research in this area in terms of replication are studies that were done at Princeton and other places. There was a lab called the Engineering Anomalies Research Lab at Princeton, run by the former dean of engineering for almost 30 years. And they had machines that are called random number generators, just computers that spit out zeros and ones in a random fashion. Mm -hmm. And when you ask people to put their mental attention to the machine to try to mentally influence it, machines that were set up all over the world and people weren't even mentally focusing on the machines. It's just that at that time when there was a high emotional elevation, the machines around the world behaved slightly non-randomly when we look at the statistics. So all of this is to suggest that our mental intention or state of mind has an influence or impact on the physical world. And then therefore, who's to say that the body, which is physical, couldn't also be affected by our mental intentions. Definitely. Now, I wrote a book on intuition and precognition, intuition to me, eh, they're, they're pretty close to the same. But what is the most compelling evidence for the fact that people have precognition um, knowing the future before it happens. Um, I believe that intuition is very strong in business. You're a business guy. You're working in, you know, helping people build what they have. Uh, some of the top three billionaires in the company, country, uh, Warren Buffett, Steve Jobs, um, uh, Bill Gates, have all said the biggest thing that got them to where they were was their ability to have a strong intuition. That's also precognition. Uh, explain what do you think is going on? So if we think of consciousness as being the basis of reality rather than being a product of a physical brain, another aspect of consciousness that I describe in the book is to say that consciousness is actually beyond all space and time. So accessing a distant location is like remote viewing. That's, that's a way in which consciousness is beyond space. And precognition might be an indicator that consciousness is also beyond time. So it's like a matter of accessing a point in time as we perceive it, but from the perspective of consciousness, which is outside of time, it can access that, that time at any point. So it would at least be conceptually possible that the body could know the future before the future is known by anyone consciously. And that's precisely what certain studies are suggesting at a very, very subtle level. Although sometimes it happens like in dreams where someone dreams an event before it happens. And those are more difficult to study scientifically because you can't necessarily control it with our current research. But the studies on looking at the body versus a future stimulus, I think we can isolate a bit more what's happening. And the basic design is like this. A person is looking at a computer screen, and I've actually done these studies at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I've been a subject. You're looking at a computer screen, And the computer screen is going to show one of two types of pictures. One is an arousing picture. So it might be a violent image or an erotic image, something that we know that would stimulate the body at a very subconscious, subtle level. Other type of picture is like a peaceful landscape, something that's just totally neutral that we know from psychology doesn't elevate the body's physiology very much. What the experimenters do is look at the body. They look at the skin responses, the pupil dilation, brain responses, heart responses, before the computer randomly generates one of these two types of images. And again, no one knows what kind of picture is coming up because it's randomly selected by the computer. Yet the body 
seems to respond seconds before the picture is shown in a direction consistent with the eventual picture that is shown, which suggests that the body, at least statistically, is reacting to the future before anyone could even know what the future is. That's a very compelling um, study and research. And, you know, in your book, along the same lines, you, for my listeners, um, Mark talks about animal psychic abilities, uh, psychokinetics, near-death experiences, communicating with deceased individuals, all with the intent of, I would say, proving or strengthening your theory about consciousness. So can you summarize why mainstream science just might be wrong? Hmm. I think your point about ego earlier is, is one I want to return to because it's, I, I think it might be holding back certain progress in science. And I'll give a quote from a woman named Brenda Dunn, who co-ran the lab at Princeton that I mentioned. And Dr. Robert John, the former dean of engineering, was her, her partner in running the lab. I have my own podcast, which will be coming out in 2019, sometime later this year. And I interviewed Brenda, among others. And when I asked her this exact question, um, she said when she would tell different scientists about her research that she was doing, which studied non-local consciousness and obviously challenges the conventional wisdom, people would say to her things like, Brenda, do you realize that if your research is correct, then everything that I've done in my career would be shown to be wrong? So I think that dynamic is at play where there's a certain protective nature where people want to protect their careers, perhaps, or correct, uh, protect their theories. And this information is actually very threatening. Yeah. And I, and I get that. I mean, even last evening when Tim was talking, there was a neuroscientist in the audience. And as you know, neuroscientists come a long way and there are certain theories that they're working for, and they are actually coming to grips with the fact that uh, some of the things that they had as theories and postulates that they thought were correct are currently incorrect. So we are seeing a big shift here. So Mark, uh, to kind of sum this up, um, in your last chapter, one of close to chapter 13, um, you say, what might be the implications for every adult? everyday life. And you pose many different questions for considerations uh, for the reader to ponder. But one of the most compelling that I pulled out of it was if consciousness, consciousness simply is and is all that is, then each of us would be part of that consciousness. Therefore, we would all be connected. Are we in fact all connected in your estimation? To me, the research that I've seen to this point certainly points in that direction. Can we prove it? I'm not sure we're at the point of like scientific proof, but there's a lot of really strong evidence, such as a lot of these psychic abilities suggest kind of an interconnectedness. And Dr. Dean Radin at the Institute of Noetic Sciences has looked at this phenomenon of quantum entanglement, which to summarize very briefly is you have two particles that are physically separated from each other. When you affect one, the one that's far away is affected at the exact same instant, which suggests that there is a connection uh, that's happening at a non-local scale. And Dr. Radin, has, his book, Entangled Minds, looks at these phenomena of consciousness as it relates to quantum entanglement. So I think there, there might be something there. 
but also the near-death experience, which we haven't discussed as much. Um, there are instances where people are in extreme physiological trauma. For example, their heart has stopped, and yet they're having a highly lucid experience. And in the book, I, I talk about theories as to why this is not a hallucination, and rather it's consciousness functioning independently of a body. But one of the phenomena discussed in the near-death experience that's been reported throughout history is the life review, where people talk about experiencing their whole life kind of in a flash, and they're observing how they behave towards other people and saying, well, I wish I would have treated that person better or, or something like that. But in, in, in those cases, people often report taking on the consciousness, so to speak, of the people that they affected in those instances when they look back on their life. So let's say Bob's in his life review, and he recalls an instance where he was really mean to a woman named Jane. In that life review, he might re-experience the event through Jane's eyes as if he were Jane, which is sort of like we're part of one consciousness and in this alternate state or dimension or whatever it is in the near-death experience, you're able to switch lenses as part of the same stream of consciousness. So that is another piece of evidence that points towards interconnectivity. Well, Mark, I think what you've done in this book is given a lot of evidence and a lot of support to this fact of consciousness or having people take what I would call uh, a, a new paradigm shift on consciousness. Um, and you've brought it a long way and you've actually been able to distill it down in a very short order. The book is not, you know, in, incredibly difficult to read. It's an easy read. There's a lot of citations for people. Um, if you were to leave our listeners with one last thought regarding consciousness or um, uh, any of the combination of science and materialism, what would you want to leave them with to give them some thoughts to actually ponder? I would go back to the discussion about the life review that I just mentioned, because that's, that's been one of the more impactful things for me to learn about. And recently I interviewed Daniel Brinkley, who is, is famous for his near-death experiences. He's actually had four Thousands of them. The guy's been by, by the bedside of hundreds of people. Yeah. Yes, he's been by the bedside, but he himself has had four near-death experiences. Yep. One struck by lightning, what, three times he was struck by lightning or two? Well, he was struck by lightning once, then he had open-heart surgery twice and brain surgery once. And yeah. each of those times, he not only had a near-death experience, but he had a life review where mm -hmm. he started each life review from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And he was a Marine in Vietnam, and he told me that he was vicious when he was a Marine, and he killed many people. In his life review, he experienced the deaths of the people that he killed and the pain that they went through. But not only that, he experienced the pain of, for example, the children who would no longer have a father because he had killed the father. And this, again, points to the interconnectivity of everything. But those who study near-death experiences often refer to the life review as teaching us something about the meaning of existence and that the focus of life might be best spent on how we treat one another rather than purely material means. And when people have a near-death experience and come back to their bodies, they often have a massive shift in priorities. And Daniel Brinkley is an example. Oh, I think more than not, you know, near-death experiences um, change people forever. forever. Um, it's, it is quite interesting from people and MIT did the study, um, the people that are resilient to change, you know, people that actually have a heart attack 
come back and don't change any of their habits. It's really fascinating that eight out of 10 don't change their habits. Yet when they actually go through the tunnel through a near death experience, um, they do. Um, so it is quite fascinating. Some of the research that's been done. Well, I want to thank you for being on inside personal growth. And for all my listeners, we've been on with Mark Gober. The book is called an end to upside down thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. This is a wonderful book that's well-designed and an opportunity for you to take a big swipe at this concept. If you're out there listening and want to uh, do that, I'm going to highly recommend that you uh, click on the link that we're going to have going to Amazon and pick up uh, Mark's book. Also go to his website at markgober, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. And Mark, pleasure having you on the show with us. Thanks so much for taking the time today to impart some of your wisdom um, on our listeners. Well, thank you for having me, Greg. It was a fun conversation. This podcast is brought to you by David Dibble, the author of a new book entitled The New Agreements for Leaders. Please listen to podcast number 694, where David and Greg discuss the four new agreements for leaders, managers, and coaches, as well as the seven simple tools designed to develop emerging leaders and managers, which is key to growing excellent organizations. The four new agreements, which are number one, find your higher purpose for work. Number two, grow and serve your people. Number three, lean into the core problems. And number four, pursue mastery. Although they're quite simple, it requires consistent diligence to integrate them into the way you and your people lead and manage. Still, it's well worth the investment. You can expect ROIs of 3x to 10x year one, along with much more engaged people. Join David and Greg as they have a very lively discussion about these four new agreements and how they can change your profit, performance, and purpose. Please listen to podcast number 694 with author David Dibble as they discuss the new agreements for leaders. You can also go to www.thenewagreements.com for more information about this book. Thank you for listening.